Welcome to the Modern Figures Podcast. I'm Dr. Jeremy Waysom. I'm Dr. Kyla McMullen. And we're here with our regular contributor from NC Wet, Dr. Jeffrey and Wilder. Hey, hey. Hey. This podcast exists to highlight the stories of Black women in computing, inspire high schoolers and the young at heart, and to dispel the myths and preconceptions about Black women in computing. Kyla and I are from the Institute for African American Mentoring in Computing Sciences, or IMCS. IMCS serves as a national resource for computing students, faculty, and industry professionals. We're funded by the National Science Foundation. Our goals are to increase the number of African Americans receiving doctoral degrees in the computing sciences, to promote and engage students in teaching and training opportunities, and to add more diverse researchers into the advanced technology workforce. This podcast is funded by the National Center for Women in Information Technology. NCWIT is a nonprofit that convenes, equips, and unites change leader organizations to increase the participation of all women in the field of computing. So NCWIT stands for the National Center for Women in Information Technology. Um, NCWIT is a national nonprofit organization whose mission is very simple. Um, our goal is to increase the meaningful participation of women and girls in uh, the field of computing. Uh, we've been around since 2004, and we currently work with over 1,100 organizations across the country, uh, whether that's corporate organizations, institutions of higher education, K-12 uh, schools and enti- entities, and we really work to um, unite, convene, and equip um, our educational community with ways in which to broaden participation of women and girls. And importantly, we do that at the intersections of race, class, gender, color, disability. So when we're talking about increasing the participation of girls, women and girls in computing, it's all girls, making sure that every girl um, who wants access has access. That's awesome. So we're back with our guest, Dr. Stacey LaSure, who that is her entire research area, looking at the persistence and opportunities for women of color who are in engineering and computer science. So we're going to continue this conversation. So we left off kind of talking about um, putting your life on hold and how that was something that you heard in some of the narratives (laughs) Uh, from the research that you're conducting for the Naila Project. And I think it's a good idea for us to talk about what the Naila Project is again, and then kind of go back into the putting your life on hold. Yeah, so uh, Naila Project is an NSF-funded project uh, in collaboration with the University of California, Irvine, as well as Heidelberg University. We have Dr. Sharnia Artis, who is at UCI, and Dr. Marjorie Shavers at Heidelberg. And we're really trying to understand the overall experiences of black women who are in pursuit of PhDs or postdocs in computer science and engineering. Mm -hmm. And we wanna better understand how are they persisting so that we can then learn some strategies to share with, you know, advisors, other students, other black women who may be interested in pursuing this. So we're really trying to better understand what can we do to help us persist without compromising uh, our overall well-being. And this got real heated (laughs) towards the end. We were getting real excited about some of the conversation. So we we decided we needed more time with Stacy. So thank you, Stacy, for sticking around. Yeah, thank you. And giving us the opportunity to continue this dialogue. So putting your life on hold. I mean, 
I, I gave an example of how people were going on vacations to Europe and yeah. <laughs> buying houses and, you know, getting promotions. And getting I married, was having kids, all these things. And I was in grad school, like, the whole time. Oh, and yeah. it's, like, the same people, <laughs> not yeah. necessarily different people every single time. And I think a lot of people feel that way. Yeah, for sure. We definitely found that to be the case, that they talked about this whole idea. And if you think about the average age, even, that a lot of these women are finishing up their PhDs and they decide to go into postdocs, you start looking into childbearing age or not, how challenging mm -hmm. it is to find a mate. And so, like you said in the opening, is don't put your life on hold. Mm -hmm. How do we do that? How do we help young women understand that you can do all of those things? And how do we help... Uh, institutions, how do you support those women so they can yes. live? Because you don't want them to have a resentment around the idea that they're pursuing their education or they're going into these fields that require a lot of time if they go into postdocs. So how do we get, number one, for them not to feel as if they have to put their mm -hmm. lives on hold and then um, organizations, institutions, universities, what have you, to support support them as they're doing those things? <sighs> yeah. oh, okay, so we talked about trigger <laughs> moments. So this yes. is another one for me. Really? Um, I was 27 when I started my doctoral program at the University of Florida and finished up four years later, um, right before I turned th 31. And the entire time that I was doing my doc program, um, I just had this singular focus. Yes. I'm here to get my PhD. Right. That's it. I mean, I, I, you know, was curving suitors left and right, so to speak. <laughs> Real talk, true story. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I, at no point did I think about, um, you know, giving a relationship any serious thought, mm. having kids. I always thought I can do that later. I always yes. felt like I had to put it on hold because at the forefront needed to be my coursework, my exams, finishing the dissertation. And, you know, we talked earlier about how everybody was expecting me to do it. There was so yeah. much writing on it mm -hmm. that I didn't really think that I always felt like I could do that later. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I got the biggest shock of my life. One thing that no one ever talked to me about um, before I finished my doctorate was how having a doctorate really does isolate you in a different way socially yes. yeah. mm -hmm. um, that I really hadn't anticipated. Yes. I mean, people who would, would have dated me before in, in my grad program didn't want to have anything to do with me afterwards because I'm Dr. Wilder now. Yeah, that's real And that's cool. such wow. a, I mean, I'm the same person. Yeah. But there's that added layer. I mean, we talked earlier about, like, what it's like to, to navigate your work balance. But then outside of work, what that means in the community, what that means when you're trying to date or right. if you're interested in, in being partnered or having a mate, what that looks like. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, um, you know, my ex-husband did not have a doctoral degree, nor did I feel like I, I wanted someone um, who had one necessarily, but it just really does impact your ability to, to do that. I, I ended up getting married at, um, I think I was 33 when mm. I got married and 35 when I had my daughter and um, 36 when I got divorced, mm. right? Mm. Um, all of those things played into yes. the breakup of the marriage and I just feel, I feel thankful that I have a child, right? Um, the thought of having another one, well, that's a different story. Along yeah. with, you know, getting married again. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, your story reminded me of, like, you know, how just dynamics change from knowing someone. It reminded me of, like, 
um, I was at the gym and I have a friend that I used to work out with in the morning. And I guess, you know, someone noticed me when I was there and they asked him later, like, oh, yeah, what's her name? I want to get to know her. He was like, she has a PhD. Da, da, da. And listen, and the guy was like, oh, never mind. Oh, like, wow. He was like, he's like, I don't have anything to offer her. Wow. And then he was like, yeah, acting like that, you sure don't. Oh, you know? yeah. Well, but all that to say, like people all of a sudden, you know, their interests change once they, cause they they have this idea of okay you smart so you must think you smarter than me you're gonna like put me down or whatever so it's crazy well yeah. okay i want to go i want to i want to tell you guys my story because i think that it's a little bit it's completely different from jeffrey ann's okay um and i don't i don't know where to start so i <laughs> as a college student i was not i I never wanted to get married. I wasn't one of those people that were like, oh, I'm going to have this fairy tale wedding and I'm going to wear this particular style of dress. Or like, I was never that kid either. Like, I would rip the heads off of my Barbie dolls. <laughs> I would make them look ugly. I was very much like a tomboy, like a daddy's girl all the way. Like, I just, it was just me. Like, I was just different. Um, and in college, I had a lot of friends who were like, dating and you know meeting people all the time and I had a lot of difficulty just being with the engineers like they were I know I'm wearing a shirt that said says black nerds unite but like I am not a nerd and I just didn't fit in with nerds and so when I would go to conferences and things for engineering I was already intimidating because I'm an extrovert I'm very sure of myself I don't kind of shy away from conversation and it was intimidating to a lot of guys in engineering. Like they just either they didn't want to talk to me or they had to exert some type of control in some type of way, right? So I never wanted to be in a relationship with somebody who was an engineer or in computing. I thought they were strange people or they were arrogant and I just was not about that. So ultimately, um, I ended up meeting my husband while I was in my junior year mm. of college. And I didn't know, like, I think at the time, I we had both just got out of really bad relationships with people. And when we met, we weren't looking, right? It just, it's, it just happened, right? Like, it, it was just like a moment. I saw him, he saw me, and like, and <laughs> like magic it was very much like a ridiculous movie. Like, someone could <laughs> literally write a movie That's about cute. our Did you our run across the fields with butterflies? No. No, but but if I told you like the story of how he asked me to start dating him, it's very much one of those types of stories. It's ridiculous, Aww. right? So I just I I didn't expect it, but it happened. And we got married while I was in my doctoral program. Nice. And he doesn't have a a college degree. He is one of the most intelligent people that I've ever met in my lifetime though. And he's a Aircraft rescue firefighter paramedic. Shout out to my husband, Rod. What up? Hey, Rod. <laughs> Super cool. And he didn't understand what I was going through. But in not understanding what I was going through, he was still willing to support me no matter what. Yeah. Yeah. And he was there for me when stuff got really crazy and I wasn't sure of myself. And he was always affirming and in addition to, you know, my family and the other people around me, he was just another voice that spoke life into my situation. And it was very difficult. Like, I was very depressed. Mm-hmm. And there was a point where I was like, 
all right, this degree's not moving forward. This relationship's not moving forward. I'm getting tired of waiting. <laughs> it's, it's, it's been a few years, and I don't have a big shiny ring on my finger. And I used to tell him, the longer you wait, the bigger the ring gets. Y'all can't see this <laughs> ring, but it's it's quite large. That's how long he waited. Um, and we just celebrated our third wedding anniversary. And honestly, like, I I just... I couldn't imagine someone better for me in my life. But I know that that's not everyone's story. I know yeah. that like people have a very tough time navigating graduate school mm-hmm. with a spouse, with <laughs> someone who they're yeah. in a relationship with, because it's rigorous. Yeah. But if you find the right person, they're not going to put you down. They're going to lift you up, yeah. right? And that's who I found. That's and I think awesome. sometimes, too... Yeah, I'm crying over here. <laughs> I'm not crying, you're crying. <laughs> I think sometimes, too, um, it's really important, especially as a high-achieving black woman, no matter what you're doing, to find a mate that doesn't feel like they're in competition right. with you. Mm. So for them to know, hey, I'm still this high achiever, but I still need you. Like, me yes. being me does not put you down at all. And I oh, think yeah. that's, like, such an important quality that I didn't realize until, like, I think I was in grad school. And I was just a PhD student, but, like, all of my friends are PhD students. And, you know, there was a situation where, like, the cops came to a party and they were claiming we were doing something that we weren't. And I told the police officer that we weren't. He was like, well, you and all your friends think you have PhDs and you're so much smarter than everybody else. I'm like, it's not even about that. Like, he literally is wrong. Like, we're not doing what he said we're doing. You know he's wrong because you're sitting here. But, you know, that dynamic Mm -hmm. just pulls itself into the conversation. I'm like, so you were just basically thinking that we think we're smarter than everybody else. Like, this has nothing to do with this situation right here. Smarting while black. Exactly. Smarting while black. Can I just be another one? (laughs) Yeah, and and it's not a competition. Relationships are not competitions. And I think um, a lot of my friends struggle because... You have people who, and I think it's just our culture in general right now, like, we want to be the best at everything, and we always want to put our best selves forward, and that's all we want people to see about us, and that's just not reality. Like, you aren't a perfect person. Nobody on earth is, and if you (laughs) never let somebody see the pieces of you that are kind of the darkest parts of who you are, they will never fully know you. Right. And they can't help you in any way because you are allowing them to. Yeah. And as black women, we're so conditioned to want to do everything ourselves. And if we would just let go of some things, right. <laughs> it would make it easier, right? Yeah. Yes. But I think that's part of it. You know, as we are talking, we don't know how to separate things, right? Yeah. And so this all that we're going through at work and in, or in school, we have to be this super strong black mm-hmm. woman, right? Mm-hmm. And so when we get home, we don't know how to take that hat mm-hmm. off. And if we can learn how to do that, the earlier, the better. And also this idea of a perfect mate, and he has to have this degree mm-hmm. or this, we got to let that go. Yes. Uh, and I love a song by uh, Jill Scott, um, We Need You. Yes. Right. And, and so we need to they need to understand that we need them and a lot of times because we, we can't show that side. And that's why that code switching thing is so dangerous, yeah. mm-hmm. because if you are constantly trying to figure out if you just remain who you are all the time, you can you can have both. But if I'm like, OK, yep. where am I now? Am I am I superwoman <laughs> now or right. my wife yeah. or my girlfriend or right? mommy or mommy? Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So leave the superwoman cape sitting down somewhere and just uh-huh. be who you are. And I think that would help a lot with you know these relationships because that's real it's a real thing right yeah so i think i think it 
think we got to a place where, <laughs> you know, we can all agree that it's possible to find love. It's just we got to stop kind of putting ourselves in these silos where yeah. it has to be this certain type of person or like we have to present ourselves a certain type of way to find a mate. And I don't I don't even know. So I'm one of those people who are a firm believer of as a woman, I'm not looking for you. Right. Oh, yeah. No. You're going to find me. I think of it like a double dutch. Like, and I am the ropes, and you need to get in where you fit in. <laughs> double dutch don't come looking for you. I love it. Yes. But I do think, like, in terms of just our existence in computing or in engineering more broadly, like, there are some unique things about being black and being a woman and having to juggle both of those things at the same time. And... And also, like, just, we're not just black and a woman. We are more than that, right? Intersectionality involves all aspects of your life. Yeah. Right? And I, I like to lean towards more, like, womanist theory, mm-hmm. where you bring to the table your whole self, yeah. not just your gender. Right. Um, it's your faith. It's your disability status. It's are you a parent? Are you not? Like, yeah. there are so many aspects about who we are and, and how we were raised that we bring to our classrooms, to our labs, to, you know, to class yeah. <laughs> as students. And we need to be able to honor all of those pieces of ourselves in the same way, like, that we would present them in a relationship with our colleagues. We need to be able to be our whole selves. And I don't know how, I mean, it's hard to do that. It's very hard to do that. It takes a lot of courage. I it think. does. Courage. You know, there's an activity I do in one of my workshops. Um, it's, it's about be- diversity beyond gender and race. And so what I ask the participants to do, and, and typically these are college students, graduate students, you know, write down three of your identities, whatever they are. Mm. Whatever, you know, you can choose. And I go through the list. Does It can be wife, mother, you know, what have you. It uh, doesn't have to be I'm black, I'm female, what have you. And then I ask them to choose one of those identities they identify with the most one that they admire the most, Hmm. and then um, one, a stereotype about that identity that's not true, that Mm. they don't don't have that particular stereotype. And it's really interesting. What I find is when they do those types of things, it it, it forces them to think beyond just gender and race, number one. But what what I have found very interesting is when they select the one they admire the most, sometimes it's ones that people... Uh, may consider that's a part of their identity that they're uncomfortable with. Let me give you an example. Like one time, um, a gay white male, that's how he identified, right? He said, those are my three identities. He said, being gay is the one I'm, I'm, I admire most. And he talked about how uh, the different things he had to overcome in order to, uh, how he had to be strong, right? Mm-hmm. Because that was one that forced him to be able to deal with the um, discrimination or what have you, right? And so a lot of times people may think that's one that that person may be ashamed of. And so we, 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 we uh, maybe are judging them based on that in a way, or we're worried about how do we make that person feel comfortable around that identity. And this is actually one I admire about myself the most. And I think if we can for, we can start to do those types of things and say, this is a part of my identity. And like you said, bring your whole self to the, to the table and stop trying to, you know, be 
in these separate boxes and we have to identify with that which most people will identify with us as like they see me first as a black woman mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. whereas there's something else that may that may stand out most right mm-hmm. but you're right bring your yeah. complete self to the table it's so important and there's just so many differences between all of us exactly right? yeah. like just because we're both black women or all black women it doesn't mean that her experiences are anything alike exactly right. Right. I was going to say, too, like, with bringing your whole self to the table, don't be afraid to say the word black. Like, right. I've been in mixed company. Like, black is not a bad word. Yeah. People will, like, let's say, oh, someone walks in, like, oh, there's an older gentleman looking for you. They'll describe everything about him yes. except the fact that he was black. Like, people act like they're afraid to say the word black. Exactly. And it's not a bad thing. Like, I'm proud to be black. That's like, whole, I don't want to yeah. be nobody else. Yeah. Well, that's the whole a idea. Black girl. I'm a magical black girl. <laughs> yeah. Shout out to my girl, Evelyn. <laughs> and that's the whole idea when I said, you know, pick your identities, cause, uh, identities that you identify with and that you're most proud of. So when I do workshops as well, I say, don't feel sorry for me because I'm a black woman. Mm-hmm. I love being a black woman. I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't change anything about it. That's right. And a lot of times people think, oh, we don't want her to feel too black. You know, <laughs> or, you know what I'm saying? It's like I feel too black like already. Right. You know? <laughs> How does that work? Yeah. Too black. I feel too black today. It's your hair, child. (laughs) Yes, they do everything they can to try to not identify with. You know, they don't want to say anything about you know that. And I, I, you know, I talked about how too. You know, when you travel abroad and people who have are not familiar with seeing black uh, people, Mm -hmm. particularly black Mm -hmm. women, and our wonderful ways we may wear our hair. There's a curiosity, Mm -hmm. and because they don't have the same history as this country, they 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 ask questions and they're not afraid. They don't think that you have some sort of negative connotation Mm -hmm. about who you are. Mm -hmm. And in this country people are more reluctant to to ask questions or be curious because they think it's offensive mm-hmm. when that's the part of me that I love the most yeah, yeah. <laughs> right and I like the fact that you ask questions like yeah. I will explain it to you yeah so yeah yeah I actually do appreciate when someone doesn't reach out and try to touch my hair <laughs> I had a friend in grad school where like I had my hair like in a puff and so like the puff was just too tight and so I just took the band off of it but my hair didn't move and but I was doing this like in conversation not even thinking but I was like whoa how'd your hair do that and I was, and I was like well and I like used this analogy of like just trying to explain to him like you know I was like okay imagine a bunch of curly telephone cords what? and like I was, and imagine this and he's like oh my gosh do that again like you know but just the fact that he had this curiosity about right. it yeah. and it wasn't like a hey you're a pet I'm gonna touch your hair it's just like whoa that was really cool right. how does this happen in an episode of how to get away with murder right now this <laughs> this past season there there's a scene where Viola Davis has to dodge you know a white female who's trying to touch her hair oh yeah and I, I'm sure that every black woman who saw mm-hmm. that episode was like, yep. Yep. <laughs> there was a collective sigh, like, yeah, <sighs> again. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, that's real life. Mm-hmm. I think for me, like, my hair is such an important part of who I am. It's like a crown on my head. And I want people yeah. to, like, recognize me, even though I change my hair a lot. Even though I haven't changed it yet nope. on this podcast. <laughs> it's happening, people. Like, oh. it's going to happen. It will happen. Um, but I just, I remember being the only one in my research group, the only black female American, Uh (laughs) the only so many things and being honored, like not having to deal with these issues where people are trying to grab me and touch me. Like I'm like some type of trophy or something. Like it was 
it was really them being truly inquisitive. But I wish I didn't have to have those experiences all the time. I wish like I could just come to my lab and have someone be like, "Ooh, girl, your hair looks great today. Like, where'd you get your hair done? Or like, how did they do that? And all of that has to do with like, I was the only one. I, I never had the chance to do that unless it was with like someone else in a different department entirely on campus or, yeah. you know, within spaces that I felt safe in. And so I, I know that everyone deals with isolation differently. And Stacey, we talked about like the isolation that students had in one of the narratives that you read even. But I wonder like, what some what are some strategies that you've seen students use to counteract the isolation that exists within engineering and computing? Yeah, you know, one of the things is finding a community outside of engineering and computer science. You know, it may be an office of minority education or uh, even the financial aid office. A lot of times <laughs> you'll find, you know, black people working in the financial aid office and those people can become your um, someone you can go vent to. Uh, but to really go outside, get outside more. We have a tendency to stay in our labs so much and work again because we're so hyper-focused, but to build a support uh, system, but outside the school. But also what I uh, will recommend at this point, and I heard this from some of the students too, is that we have to learn to maybe do things we don't want to do sometimes. Mm -hmm. And this is really helping us to grow. It's not about bending or code switching. It's really about self-development and being so comfortable in your own skin that you can show up as you are and, 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 and see it as a learning experience. I'm going to get to know other people. And what I find is that if I'm comfortable and confident uh, who I am, then people are okay with that because they see that I'm comfortable, so they're not so uncomfortable. And I think a lot of times we can just start to really realize and accept that we can really show up just as we are. And we can do things that are different, even though we may not be accustomed to doing those things. Uh, and that can help with the isolation because I think that sometimes people are afraid uh, to interact with us because they don't quite know how we're going to respond. And if we are uncomfortable all the time, they really don't know how we're going to respond. Yeah. Or if we're not true to ourselves all the time and authentic, they don't know how to respond. So I think part of it is just really getting to a place where you can authentically be yourself at all times and show up, you know, and get to and look look at um, curi- look at it from a standpoint of curiosity. I'm curious yep. to learn about other people and don't see it as I'm being forced to assimilate because mm-hmm. you don't have to assimilate, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's that's a new take. If I, you know, if 20 years ago, the advice I would have given myself, it would have been to do that. Mm. Yeah. I love that. That mirrors my experience so much. Um, so I'll share personal and then professional. So when I was a doctoral student at University of Florida, there weren't very many people of color in my department. But I essentially lived uh, in the Office of Graduate Minority Programs, and that's where I found my community. That's where I found my family. It's now called Um, the Office of Graduate Diversity Initiatives, if you decide to go look for that. Okay, the (laughs) Office of Graduate. Is it still in Grincher Hall? It sure is. Um, I worked there. They paid me. They fed me. (laughs) Um, They gave me um, money um, at the end of my um, I remember getting some some fellowship money Mm -hmm. at the very end of I graduated in August of 2008, 
but I defended in May. So that summer, mm-hmm. I didn't have any funding mm-hmm. because I was technically defended and whatnot. So they stepped in and, and gave me some fellowship money for right. that summer. That's amazing. Um, it, it really was amazing. I mean, I, I really think so fondly um, of my doctoral experience because I was around so many other people of color mm-hmm. from a variety of disciplines who were um, supporting each other. We were thriving and we were accomplishing our goals. And the, the thought of like not finishing never really entered my mind, mm-hmm. not seriously, right? Because I knew I had so much support and encouragement. When I went into my um, tenured position, tenure track position um, um, at my university, I was the only person of color in my department um, for, I mean, I was there for 10 years. I was the only person of color for eight years. And it was very, wow. very hard. Mm-hmm. It was a lot more difficult. Uh, there was no Office of Graduate Minority Anything. Right. <laughs> there was no Office of bio- Minority Anything. Um, and uh, it was it was difficult. And when you become a professor, you know, we talked about before how the standard, the bar is higher. Mm-hmm. You know, they set the bar higher. And you don't have as much room to talk, mm-hmm. break silence. Um, yeah. So I spent a lot of my first years quiet. Mm. Um not being able to share my story. And then ultimately I shared my story with the entire university. But I do do think it's very important uh, for, for people to feel okay. For a long time I didn't feel okay mm-hmm. just being who I was. Um, and now that I'm in a different professional capacity working for NC Wit, I'll speak a little bit about the things that NC Wit does to help people be who they are. Um, and that's through really something very simple like resources. So. Mm-hmm. We create and develop all these different kinds of resources from small reports to little factoids to one-pagers on things like this. Um, and and NCWIT has a, a huge focus on intersectionality mm-hmm. um, and social justice. Um, and I think that's really important. And, and for me, even though there aren't, um, you know, there isn't necessarily a critical mass of women of color there, that I'm able to work on projects like this and able to be who I am and it's very much welcome so that's a good thing yeah that's, that's cool. awesome that's great through IMCS we've created the IMCS guidelines that's and right. those guidelines are currently developed for uh, departments and faculty to help support underrepresented students in their labs or in their departments and so we are creating products too to try to help people who may not look like us or may not understand how to support people who don't look like them in their labs, right. um, giving arming them with information so that they can be better mentors and, and better support people. And not just information, as well as a relationship. Yes. Because they can, you know, we're trying to begin a program where people can almost consult us. We're like, hey, yep. what do we need to do? How do we get this going? You may not know all the research and all the right words to say, but here are some practical things yes. that you can do from the day to day to, you know, increase the number of people. Because recruitment's one thing, but retention once uh, they get totally there, different. you know, making sure the climate's good and it's not mm-hmm. toxic, that's a whole nother thing. Yeah, I just came, well, I recently attended the Institute for Teaching, or the Institute on Teaching and Mentoring uh-huh. by SREB which is the Southern Regional Education Board. They do this every year. It's a phenomenal conference. And one of the things that I really took away from that, the conversations that we had there was, we have to stop just saying recruit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it's one thing just to get students there. It's another thing to, to keep students there and help them graduate, right? So we need to look at how we recruit and retain students. Right. Because retention is really our problem. Yeah. We get a lot of graduate students 
<laughs> yeah, we get a lot, but keeping them here, and it kind of ties back into all the things we've been talking about, like isolation, because I feel like when people feel like they're not part of the crowd, then they sort of withdraw and mm-hmm. step away from everyone. And of course, you'll be isolated, but you know, having this sense of belonging, like everyone yeah. belong, you know, deserves to be here. I made uh, when I was in my first year of my doctoral program. Um, I was approached by different graduate students who participated in a summer program with me, and they were like, Jeremy, you know people here, and we want you to create something for us. And these were all engineering graduate students. We have a very strong um, black graduate student association, but we don't want to do what they're doing. (laughs) We want to develop the skills that we need in engineering that are relevant to us if we want to go into academia or industry. So this is your new job right. <laughs> for us. Like, how about we like identify all of the black students who are currently in engineering or computing related degree programs. And we just all come together and figure out what we need to be successful. And it turned into something wonderful. Yeah. So we now have a, a grad uh, group that's a component of our National Society of Black Engineers organization on campus. And we have opportunities for students to just vent. We have professional development. We invite speakers from across the country. And we now have a series where they're doing um, jobs outside of academia in particular. So bringing in invited guests and speakers to talk about how they're using their doctoral degrees outside of industry and in the traditional or outside of academia which is like kind of the traditional track for most PhDs Um, and it's it's been really cool to see it grow and we've gotten contacted by other institutions to try to create the same thing our a society for Hispanic professional engineers is doing the same but you know at a predominantly white campus, you might be the only. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, there are other black people on your campus somewhere. <laughs> they have to be there somewhere. Yeah. Just because <laughs> right? you don't see them in your program doesn't mean, oh, I guess that's, you know, that's it. Like we had something very similar to your, uh, right. to Grad Nesby. It was called Smezhji, <laughs> the <laughs> Society of Minority Engineers and Graduate Students. Mm-hmm. And same sort of thing. I think I might have been president twice or vice president then president i don't know but same sort of thing because we were both very outgoing and i remember just tapping people like you're black right come, come over to here. this meeting we'll feed you right but even if like let's say you're at a university where there just is not a critical mass like one thing that helped me was that i developed black friends that were outside of the school yeah so i was in a college town but detroit was nearby so I remember one day very vividly wondering, because I love to dance, and there was a ballroom dancing class. I'm like, I don't have a partner, but I wonder about it. And then the lights went out, and that was, like, the last thing I remembered reading about. Like, you know, it was a storm. The storm was oh, going on, and the okay. lights went out. And I was like, man, I'm not going to just sit in the house in the dark. Let me just go to this event that I literally was just reading about before the lights went out. I went and, you know, just became part of this Detroit ballroom dancing, uh-huh. you know, sort of group. And I'm sure that was full of black people. Oh, yes. Were well, you well, not st- well, 
I did learn to step, okay. but Detroit has its own version called ballroom. But like just from doing that, like I met some awesome people who, um, you know, we would go to Detroit, we would go to different places, we meet up with them, and they had nothing to do with school. And it yeah. felt so good That's to just talk to people yeah. about mm-hmm. things that had nothing to do with the university, with being yeah. stressed. Even other grad students can stress you out because, yes, you know, child. they might be on 10 and you're like, you know what? I'm trying to decompress right now and you're on 100. <laughs> like, this is too much energy for right. me. Right. Can you bring this down? I mean, I like hearing about other people's things. Like, oh, like I have a friend and her her son was so funny and he would just, you know, come home with like little funny stories. But just having that mm-hmm. other outlet to remind you, you're a person. Like, interact with people who are in the community that have nothing to do with your university. Go to church. Right. Go to church. Yeah. <laughs> you know, going back to the study, you know, mm-hmm. that's that's a strategy that mm-hmm. a lot of the women who are persistent said that they're doing those sort of things, sorts mm-hmm. of things. If it's volunteering at the church, if it's doing these social activities. Uh, the other thing that we are finding in our study is that as we're asking women questions about their experiences and what it's like to be a black woman, um, they, they can tell you um, and they describe and there's a lot of uh, you can almost feel the, the sadness, you know, mm-hmm. you can feel it, the energy that they have. And then when you ask them about their research, mm. they lighten up. Mm-hmm. And not only that, uh, what we are finding is that they're not giving themselves enough credit for how great their research is. And so one of the strategies that I were, I'm hoping to figure out some way to, to word this, but basically mm-hmm. focus on the research because there's someone else in your department or someone else on your campus that has research similar to yours. And so if, and I know that's, that, listen, that's easier said than done. <laughs> I've been there. Um, uh, but what I'm saying is if we, what you focus on expands. And so if I'm constantly focusing on my isolation, on being different, I'm going to get more of that. But if I focus on how fabulous I am as a researcher, and yeah. again, these are alternative identities to being a black woman. I am a researcher. That's Maybe good. I'm a researcher first today. Mm-hmm. And if we start to do that, I think they can just put that they can lower some of the barriers. We we can have control over learn, lowering that barrier, opposed to asking someone else to lower it for us. You know what I'm saying? So I'm going to insert one story here, which I think is really, really sort of drives home exactly what you're mm-hmm. saying and talks about why and how this why this podcast is so important. Why having black women's why broadening black women's um, participation in computing and STEM in general is really important. So my dissertation research was on the issue of colorism. Mm. For those who may be listening who don't know what colorism is, it's the light skin, dark skin thing, right? Everybody knows what that is. Um, I've been studying colorism for 20 plus years. I completed undergraduate research on colorism. Then when I went to my master's program, I was very excited about my research. So I went to the graduate advisor, um, who was a non-woman of color, sociologist, and, you know, I practically burst in her door and said, I already know what I'm doing my master's thesis on, I'm doing the issue of colorism. She stops me and she says, well, that's not sociological. And I said, what do you mean? She's like, well, that's a really interesting issue, but that's a a psychological issue. Excuse me? And I said, but... W.E.B. Du Bois talked about the colortocracy, and, and W.E.B. Du Bois was a, a sociologist, so yes, of course it's sociological. And here are all these other uh, studies of sociologists in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, Drake and Caton and um, E. Franklin Frazier and all these folks who studied colorism, and that professor had never heard of any of that stuff. Mm. And because she didn't know, she told me I could not do colorism. Even, even though I had proved to her in that moment that colorism <laughs> was sociological, she said, well, you can't do that. You can't research that. Wow. And at that moment, I knew, okay, two things. One, I'm going to complete my study on colorism 
but I can't do it here. Right. right? I was about to say, so I one, had to you leave. You can't be my advisor. Right. Well, right. <laughs> so I ended up doing the masters. My masters there it was a terminal masters program. I did my masters on uh, Norplant at the time, which is really big. Um, I finished my um, master's degree in like 2001, I think, or 2002. Norplant as a modern day form of eugenics. Mm. But then I transferred to the University of Florida to do my doctorate in sociology. And here we fast forward to, you know, I'm in my advisor's office. I want to do my research on colorism. This woman who's Dominican was like, oh, my gosh, this is so exciting. Let me tell you my experience about colorism in the Dominican Republic. And Mm -hmm. that was it. Yeah. That that shows how important it is to have people who look like us encouraging us and encouraging our research and encouraging us as researchers, regardless of discipline, because it's, it's extremely important. It really yeah. is. And I've seen that across disciplines, like people who want to focus on something that has a cultural component or something that's not mainstream and that being brought down and saying, oh, that's not scholarly. That's not right. worth studying. And it's across the board. I won't bring up the person I was speaking with yesterday, but they're in a whole nother venue. And I'm like, really, this is happening? You too? Like even with Mm -hmm. uh, computer science, doing things with cultural computing or human-centered computing, people think, oh, well, that's not really computer science. It's just like maybe they think you're just shuffling papers or something and not really doing research. But it's so crazy how anything that has to do with culture or being, you know, some sort of intersectional identity is thought of as less, even when there's just as much research there, just because people aren't regarding it as as important and there isn't mm-hmm. enough stuff on it doesn't mean that it's less than. Well, I'm going to scratch the cultural part because there are some some things about our society that we really like lean into culture. I'm going to replace that with black women. Yeah. Okay? Oh, yeah. Right. So I was trying to be PC. I'm sorry. Black I, women. I mean, <laughs> when it comes to research on us, right, deeming what, what's valuable, like, you know, what's scientific mm-hmm. really, yeah. right? Um, our experience is, of course, valid and scientific and worthy of being studied. Yeah. Absolutely. And in addition to being able to talk about those things, when you talk, when you mention, you know, our research and being passionate about our research, one of the things that we suggest in the guidelines is that you should offer students the opportunity to go to affinity conferences and events, mm-hmm. and it will allow them to present their research, mm-hmm. but also have an audience of people who are supportive, who understand them, and potentially are also doing similar work right yeah. right and they can build their network from going to those conferences in addition to the ones that are related to their technical field affinity conferences offer you so much yes. yeah. in terms of affirmation that you don't get otherwise or you may not get otherwise on your campus as a black woman. Yeah, and for affinity conferences, like my own story, I, as a grad student, went to my first conference, you know, Black People in Computing. That was the name of it, but basically that's what I'm going to call it. (laughs) But my first publication literally came from a conversation we had in the hallway Mm -hmm. about, hey, I think this is important. I want to study this. And, hey, I think it's important too. And five of us, basically said, we're going to research this, we're going to write a paper, and we're going to submit it. And my first publication was with a bunch of black women who we all decided, like my advisor didn't think that I was ready to publish. And I was like, well, I'm published because I heard publish, you know, publish or perish, yep. papers are currency, you ain't about to yep. hold me back. I didn't say it to his face, I said it when he closed the door, but still. 
you know, I published this thing and it just felt amazing to just, we would be on these conference calls because mind you, we're all isolated yep. at our own places. But every week or every, maybe twice a week, we would have these conference calls. We would talk. We would say, okay, you're going to do this part. You're going to uh -huh. do this part. And I was able to learn the research process in a very safe environment exactly. where I didn't have to worry, oh, am I good enough? Is this good mm -hmm. enough? Are they scrutinizing me? Is my hair wrong today? You know, right. all this Carla, stuff. that is my exact story too. And <laughs> wow. I'm, I'm not even joking. And in a completely different <laughs> space, you know? So like wow. my first publication is in engineering education. Oh mm -hmm. yeah. And my degree is in civil engineering, yeah. but I want to do engineering education research. And I was talking to a friend about, you know, issues of intersectionality and she was like, I've just been thinking about all these things and womanist theory. And I was like, I don't know what that is. And she was like, it's not feminism. And, <laughs> you know, and she was like, I have so many friends who are getting their PhDs or have received their PhDs in engineering. I'm going to gather all of us together and we're going to do something. We're going to figure out what we're passionate wow. about. and We're going to make a publication. Wow. And we did. And I mean, it, it really is affirming when you're not making progress in your work right as a graduate student you feel like something's wrong with you like yeah. why can't i do the things that the other students are doing and especially if you're the only one you yeah. know it, it makes you feel like you are deficient in some type totally. of way but that type of experience will change your life like yeah. it will make you a believer in yourself yes and in all black women i mean to be completely honest like we are capable we're here we can do anything that we put our minds to, mm -hmm. even if it's completely irrelevant to the work that you ultimately yeah. want to do. And along those lines, I mean, the Naila Project was, was born that exact same way. Wow. We had met at conferences. Wow. And we talked about how, you know, as you mentioned, Jeffrey, and there's not enough research about us as black women. Mm -hmm. And we sat around and said, you know, they're not studying us. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no, and, and so even when we were uh, writing the proposal, we had a hard time in the literature trying mm -hmm. to find things. Mm -hmm. And so we, we did the same thing, conference calls. We wrote the proposal uh, that way, and it was funded. And again, we're focusing on the research. And for professors, you know, that's currency, you yes. know, having proposal, having money comes in. And so it's hard to balance the, you know, the... Um, the disciplinary research mm -hmm. as well as these types of things, but it does give you some sort of affirmation that mm -hmm. is worth it, right? So those are some suggestions. Again, that's why I say focus on, you know, the research more than some of the other things. So that's why it's like so crazy to me that with affinity conferences, people ask like, oh, you know, why do we need to have a specific conference for this subgroup? Like Stacy, like recently you said you were in the gym with your Nesbic shirt, National Society of Blacks in Computing. And someone Plug. was asking you, look, <laughs> and someone was asking you, like, why is this group needed? Exactly. And, that, and that's such a complicated question to even begin to answer. And it's like if you have to ask me that question and you clearly do not get it. Mm -hmm. But the response to that really is everything about this world supports who you are. This mm -hmm. happened to be an Indian man, but still, you know, you have uh, so many affirmations that being uh, of a certain nationality or gender that this is normal for you. And so everything in society sort of supports your vision of what it is that you want to do. And as black women in particular, we have to find ways to help like the whole conversation we have around affirmations and uh, belongingness. I mean, we have to create those types of things. They don't automatically exist for us. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So before we go, uh, Stacy, you have a book woo, woo. Yes. Hey. that we want to shout out and it's titled stories of resilience and engineering black women threatened by stereotypes 
dri- thriving to destiny. Stories of resilience. I feel like that's been our theme. Yes. Yeah. And I'm so honored that you shared your full story with us. Yes, because thank it, you. it's so important. I, I'm becoming really passionate about storytelling. Yes. Mm. And I think it's a lost art that mm-hmm. we need to get back. Um, because that's just how we communicated before exactly. we ended up being on ships. Right. <laughs> and then again, as we tried to maintain who we were, you know, in the midst of some of the worst atrocities to ever occur on this earth. So thank you. No, thank you. It's been thank wonderful. You, so awesome. Today. Yes. Yep. Yes. Excellent. As always, you can find us on our website, modernfigurespodcast.com. Send your questions to ask us at modernfigurespodcast.com. And follow us on Twitter. Kyla's at Dr. Underscore Kyla. And I'm at Jeremy Wayson. Until next time, drink some water, eat some vegetables. And be extra like guacamole because guacamole adds quality and isn't just extra for no reason. Mm-hmm.